Good morning and Merry Christmas to you. Uh, if you have a, a copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, this morning we're finishing our Advent series, Name Above All Names, where we've taken a look at, at these four names given to the coming Messiah in the Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9. And with each one of these four names, we've looked at a New Testament passage to show how each is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the last three weeks, we've looked at Jesus as our, our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, and our everlasting Father. And now we are, are wrapping up with the final and, and arguably most important title that Christ holds, and that is the title of Prince of Peace. And so in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul provides this, this explanation of the gospel that is both beautiful and comprehensive. And we're going to start in chapter 1, and we're going to go to 14, because in verse 14, Paul says something that, that's very important for our purposes today. He says, For Christ himself is our peace. Christ himself is our peace. Now let me assure you, Paul doesn't make this statement in verse 14 without first building the case in verses 1 through 13. In these verses, we'll find a detailed description of why exactly Christ should be called the Prince of Peace. And so we're going to work our way, way through this text together. Uh, full disclosure, Ephesians 2 is a little bit of a, a bittersweet read for us. But the, the sweetness of Ephesians 2 is far greater than the bitterness. But the sweetness does not come for a few verses. So let's, let's start with the bitterness. Verse 1 starts, You were dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is how Ephesians 2 start, and it starts. And this statement is both personal and universal. It's personal because Paul addresses you. Paul addresses me. He's talking directly to us. You know, often we consider our, our shortcomings. We consider our mistakes. Uh, in our flesh, we're, we're tempted to shift blame somewhere else. We try to pin it on other people uh, in our lives or the circumstances of our lives. You know, we say things like, I really flew off the the handle last night. I, I lost my cool. I got angry, but I wouldn't have done that if my wife hadn't pushed my buttons. Or we say, I know I shouldn't be jealous of my neighbor's promotion. I should be happy for him and, and the pay raise that he received, but I've been stuck in the same job with the same salary for the last five years, and I'm, I'm frustrated with where I'm at. You know, in these habits of, of shifting blame to someone else, it goes all the way back to the fall. You remember when, when God asked Adam in Genesis 3, Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What does Adam say? He says, The woman whom you gave to be with me. The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. You see, it's not my fault, God. You know, blame my circumstances. It's the situation that, that you created. It's the marriage that you established. It's the woman that you gave me. You know, she gave me the apple, and I ate. And so Adam was, was shifting his blame elsewhere, but blame still fell squarely on his shoulders because he sinned against God. And so these words, you were dead, are, are personal 
for us. Because God, Paul's primary goal is, is, is driving you, driving me to wrestle with our own spiritual condition. When we read these words, we should be moved to a posture of gratitude or, or fear. When we read these words that you were dead, that should make us grateful or, or fearful. And so it's personal, but it's universal too. Because we understand that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That when Adam fell short of God's standard, when Eve fell short of God's standard, their decision had rippling effects throughout human history. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And so we are born into death through sin because of the actions of Adam and Eve. Satan convinced Eve that God was holding back. He asked her, did God really say? And then he urged her, surely you will not die. He convinced Eve to choose her way over God's way. And she took a bite of the apple. And Adam took a bite of the apple. And suddenly their perfect world was turned upside down. You know, God had designed the Garden of Eden as this place that creator and creation could exist together in perfect harmony. To be a place absent of, of shame, fear, hiding, and secrets. This place of perfect union. But in an instant, Adam and Eve began a path of outright rebellion against the Holy God. And when they made this decision for the first time, these, these experiences that we know all too well, they felt for the first time guilt, regret, panic, anxiety, disbelief, nervousness, shame, and heartache. These new emotions spread through their veins like ice water. Because on their account, sin and death entered the world. Because of their transgression, we were born into a sinful generation. We were born apart from God. We were born rebels. Now, you may want to, to push back a little bit here. You know, I've certainly thought, thought many times in my life that this doesn't seem fair. You know, how can we be held responsible for something that we had no part in? And it's a tough question. It's a tough question for the local church to, to wrestle with, and it seems unfair that this one misguided decision would create such far-reaching consequences. After all, because of their choice, death came to all. Because of their choice, chaos entered the world in a very real way. We can trace every disease, every natural disaster, every diagnosis of cancer, terminal illness, every divorce, every abuse, every murder, every rape, every war, back to the fall. Every conflict, every problem, every issue goes back to Genesis 3. And so when we look at these sprawling ramifications, we may be tempted to ask, how is this fair? Well, we need to understand that in God's economy, Adam is our representative. And in calling Adam our representative, what God is basically saying is that what Adam chose is what each one of us would have chosen in the same situation. You see, God knew Adam's choice would have been my choice. God knew Adam's choice would have been your choice. 
And now we can argue, I I would have never taken a bite of that apple. I would have never eaten from the tree. I mean, listen, church, I can assure you, I have never been tempted by an apple unless it is dipped in caramel or baked in cinnamon. But if we take a few moments to consider the situation in the garden, we really don't have an argument. Because we quickly realize this is about so much more than an apple. We quickly realize that the allure of becoming like God would have been more than any of us could have resisted. Satan tells Eve, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Being like God is at the root of every sin. Every sin involves this temporary lapse in judgment where you say, what is God keeping from me? What is God holding back from me? And then you chart this path where you go against the will of God so for, for a moment you can pretend to be God. You know, I heard another pastor put it this way. He said, in every heart, there's a throne and a cross. If you're on the throne, then Christ must be on the cross. If Christ is on the throne, then you must be on the cross. Now, when we're thinking clearly, we absolutely know who should be on the throne and who should be on the cross on this side of glory. We know Christ should be on the throne and we should be on the cross, that Christ is the master and we are his servants. But if we can be honest with ourselves for a moment, we can admit that self-control is not always a strong suit for us. Look, I can't keep candy in my house. The other day, Lacey had some Sour Patch Kids in our car, and there were just a few left, and I took the car to go run an errand. And later when I came home, Lacey said something to Chandler about those Sour Patch Kids, And I had to tell my four-year-old those Sour Patch Kids were gone because they were in front of me and I ate them. I I can't have candy in my house because I will eat and eat and eat until my stomach starts cramping from the sugar overload. At 31 years old, you would think I'd have a better handle on this and I would have learned my lesson by now, but I haven't. Okay, when I get my stocking on Christmas Day and I have all this candy enter into my world, I need all of you to circle me in prayer. And so what I'm, I'm trying to tell you is that if I can't resist large quantities of Reese Cups and Sour Patch Kids and Chewy Sweet Tarts, what hope would I have of resisting a, a tree in the garden which promised all of God's power and knowledge? I mean, here's the tr- tough truth for us. We don't have a case because we constantly adopt Adam's line of thinking. Where directly or indirectly we say, I know better than God. I'd rather go my way than God's way. I know what I should do, but I'm not going to do it. And so we weren't physically present in the garden with Adam, but we have ratified Adam's decision over and over again in our lives. And so the starting point for each of us is death. And because we are dead in our sins, there's no amount of religious behavioral change or white knuckle discipline or or, or church attendance that can fix us 
right? Behavior changes only affect the outside, but they don't deal with the problems on the inside. Once I heard I heard J.D. Greer give a vivid illustration about this when he's talking about our, our state described in Ephesians 2. He said, you know, you ever see that, that Tupperware container in the back of your refrigerator? It's a piece of chicken from a restaurant, and you, you wonder how long it's been in there. And so you grab it, and you open it, and you, and you take a whiff of it, and then you pass out for three or four hours. And then when you, when you wake up, you rarely think to yourself, you know, the problem with this chicken is that this chicken doesn't have enough spices on it. The problem with this chicken is this chicken doesn't have enough barbecue sauce on it. The problem with this chicken is if I could just put a little bit of hot sauce on it, then it would be okay. Then it wouldn't smell like rotting meat anymore. No, the problem is that it is rotting meat. The problem is that it's dead. When you put it in the refrigerator, it was dead. And you can preserve it for a little while, but because it's dead, it's already started the process of decaying. And so we, in our very nature, are already spiritually dead, and we are rotting. And so we may smell okay for a little while. We may be able to clean up our act for a little while. We may figure out how to cover up areas of our of stench in our lives with religion or, or manners or good morals for a little while. But ultimately, we're dead. You know, and Paul continues in verses 2 and 3 to unpack what this spiritual deadness looks like. So first he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he continues in verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so our issues continue to compound. Not only are we dead in our sin, but we're, we're followers of Satan. We were sons and daughters of disobedience. We were carrying out the passions of our flesh, and we were listening to the desires of our bodies and our minds. Instead of following God's will, we were, we were following our impulses. If our body said, have sex, drink, take it easy, get angry, we did it. If our mind said, make your own decision, do things your way, you're the king of your domain, we obeyed because we were children of wrath. And we need to allow the, the, the weight of, of verse 3 to sit with us from time to time. To remember that we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve eternal separation from God. We deserve an eternal reservation in hell. And we don't, we don't enjoy talking about hell. We don't relish talking about hell. Listen, I preached on the doctrine of hell one time back in February, and as I prepared that sermon throughout the week, I was riddled with anxiety because when you dive headfirst into a study of what Scripture says about hell and what Christ teaches about hell, you don't walk away the same. So I can understand the temptation to sweep it under the rug, the temptation to push it to the side, the temptation to outright ignore it, but we must talk about it. 
And we don't want to go into the business of only selling fire insurance, but we must see and we must help others see the clear and present danger in front of us. And so this is what Paul is doing. He's starting with the bad news. Because if you are ever going to fully understand the gospel, you have to fully understand what God has saved you from. You know, often we have this habit of jumping right to the good news without grappling with the bad news. But this is why Vadi Bakum says, you can't take from me the memory of my sin. I won't let you have it. It's a reminder of God's goodness to me. It reminds me where I once was and where I never want to be again. I'm not who I want to be, but hallelujah, I'm not who I was. And so to appreciate where you are now, you must remember where you once were and you were dead. And so that's the bad news. And it's a lot of bad news. It's a lot of of bitterness. But verse 4 changes the narrative. Verse 4 places the bitter taste in our mouth with an indescribable sweetness. Verse 4 starts with what John Stott calls the two greatest words ever spoken in the English language, but God. You were dead, but God. You were following Satan, but God. You were a son or daughter of disobedience, but God. God, you were listening to the passions and impulses of your flesh, but God, you were destined to be a child of wrath, but God, but God went to work, but God rolled up his sleeves, but God made a way for you. Paul continues in verse four, but God, being rich in mercy, because the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now if you're in Christ, These verses give a great summary of what God has done for you. You were dead in sin, now you're alive in Christ. You were sabotaged by Satan, now you're secure in Christ. You were enslaved by your will, now you're submitted to God's will. You were a children of wrath, now you're a child of God. You were destined for hell, and now you're heading for heaven. And I want you to notice when you read verses 4 through 7 that that all of the verbs are in the past tense. And Paul uses the past tense because he's referring to what Christ has already done. He's not talking about your slow, gradual, religious process where you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and moved yourself from death to life. No, he's talking about what Christ accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. On the cross, he became our sin. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, and he died a death that we deserved. On the cross, he was punished like a follower of Satan, like a son of disobedience, like a child of wrath. You know, we can summarize the gospel in four words, Jesus in my place. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now the cross is where Christianity stands apart from other religions. One of my favorite stories about C.S. Lewis um, occurred during a, a British conference on comparative religions. And several experts had, had gathered together from around the world and they were discussing whether any one belief was unique to the, to the Christian faith. Was there any belief that the Christian faith had that was different from every other religion? And so they started eliminating possibilities. You know, the Incarnation, well, other religions have different versions of God appearing in human form. But what about the Resurrection? Again, other religions had accounts of, of return from death. And so the debate went on for some time, and then eventually C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and asked, what's this rumpus about? Which is a great way to enter a room. And he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And in his forthright manner, Lewis responded, Oh, that's easy. It's grace. And after some discussion, the others agreed. This notion of, of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. And the Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, the Muslim Code of Law, each of these offers a way to earn God's approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. The gospel begins by declaring us sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, but it continues by declaring us righteous through the perfect life, atoning death, and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has already paid our ransom. It's all in the past tense. He's completed the purchase of our salvation, but you must claim it. Remember in John 3, when Christ has that conversation with Nicodemus, and he tells them that you must be born again. That, that, that's God part, God's part. That's a miracle that you take no part in. But then he tells Nicodemus, you must believe. That's where you, you trust in the gospel. That's your part in the process. And so then we get to verses 8 through 10, where Paul gives us a great summary of the salvation process. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in verses 8 through 10, we see three crucial truths about salvation. First, salvation is by grace. Paul writes, by grace you have been saved. Again, it, it's in the past tense because you don't do it yourself. God does it for you. It's a free gift. It's not based on your merit. It's not for good behavior. It's not because you have a good heart or you have great potential. It wasn't a reward for showing faith. Paul clearly says this is not your doing. 
You know, at some point, you you may have heard uh, an illustration about your salvation described like this. Something like you were drowning in the ocean and and Christ threw you a life vest and, and pulled you to safety, or you were sick in the hospital, and Christ came to your bedside, and he, he spoon-fed you a cure for your illness, or he gave you a vaccine for your illness, and, and this sounds really good, but it's not the gospel. Yeah, you weren't struggling to swim, you were face down in the water. You weren't sick in a hospital, you were dead in a morgue. And so Christ didn't rescue you from some potentially dangerous circumstance or cure you from some potentially life-threatening disease. No, He came to your lifeless body and breathed eternal life into your lungs. By grace you have been saved. And second, salvation is through faith. By grace we are saved through faith. In the simplest terms, God offers grace, we respond in faith. Listen to how H.P. Charles Jr. describes the connection between grace and faith. He says, grace is received through faith. Grace is the source of salvation. Faith is the means of salvation. Grace is the basis of salvation. Faith is the instrument of salvation. Grace is the grounds of salvation of salvation. Faith is the agent of salvation. Faith is not mental assent. It's not theological agreement. It's not personal determination. It's not warm feelings. It's not positive confessions. Saving faith is a biblical knowledge that leads to an abiding trust and results in spiritual transformation. We are saved by faith alone. Think about Acts 16, when when the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they simply answer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Christ did the work, and we trust in the work. And then finally, salvation produces good, work, good works. Paul writes, for we his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now we don't work to obtain God's favor. We work because we already have it. Once we are saved, we're sent. We see numerous examples of this in the New Testament. In Acts 9, when Paul regained his sight and his appetite after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, it says that he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. In John 4, when Jesus finished talking to the woman at the well and and received his his gift of of living water, she returned to her town to tell her story. And it says that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of her testimony. And in Luke 8, when a demon-possessed man was healed by Jesus, He was told to return to his home and declare how much God had done for him. And he went away proclaiming to the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And so gospel faith is is naturally followed by gospel work. Can't you see how the gospel is the first layer in our foundation? Everything else flows out of the gospel. 
For the local church, the gospel is our cornerstone. It's our connective tissue. It's our top priority. It's our hope in life. And it's our joy in death. The gospel is our peace. Christ is our peace. And so Paul says a lot in these verse 10 verses. And we could really dig in and, and, and spend even more time unpacking everything that's said in these first 10 verses. But I want to I move on. At the start of verse 11, Paul says, Therefore. So we know when we see therefore that he's about to build off what he's previously said. So he's going to build off this gospel foundation from these first 10 verses. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Which is made you, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers of the, of, to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Let those words encourage you this Christmas season, for He is our peace. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. You know, when I was young, I didn't have a lot of peace. You know, I've seen a lot in, in my oldest that, that we're very similar in the way that we're made up. Because she doesn't have a lot of peace. She, she worries about a lot of different things. And when I was a child, I worried about everything. I worried about small things. When my mom changed plans, I was immediately concerned. My mom talks about how I'd often ask from the back seat why we were going to this place instead of this place. You know, I'd say, Mom, you said we were going to the grocery store and then the pharmacy and then the gas station, so why are we at the gas station first? And so, so I'd worry about little simple things like that, but I'd also worry about big things too. When I made a salvation decision eight years old, I was immediately burdened about the eternal standing of my two younger brothers. I mean, I remember one night specifically laying out my anxieties about their separation from a holy God to my mom before bed. I remember saying, Mom, I I'm worried about Tarver. I'm worried about Will. They don't know Jesus yet. What if they die in, in a tornado tonight or a car crash in the morning? I mean, we should talk to them, right? And my incredibly patient mother calmly replied, Bo, they're four and two. They've got time to figure it out. Go to sleep. And so I was a very anxious child. But I didn't really carry it with me into my teenage years or into young adulthood. Over the years, as my trust in God's sovereignty deepened, my battles with anxiety lessened. When Lacey and I first started dating, she was really nervous about some upcoming finals, and I told her, Lacey, worrying is like a rocking chair. It just gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. 
And she recently found out that that's a quote from a movie and not clever words of wisdom from my 21-year-old brain. Now, I didn't come up with it, but at the time, it was probably the life motto of my college years. But over the last 10 years, my life has changed significantly. I got married, graduated from college and seminary. I had three children, and I started working in ministry, and gradually my life became more chaotic. Gradually my life became more stressful, and I got to a point where I started having a harder time maintaining a healthy balance. And then 2020 came. And for a long time, I was doing okay in 2020, but at the start of the fall, my anxiety reached a a tipping point. Because on top of the normal stress of being a husband, a father, and a pastor, I dealt with the deaths of my grandmother and my uncle. I dealt with relational conflict in my family. I dealt with financial stress. I dealt with difficulty in in parenting. And I dealt with a global pandemic, which forced me to wrestle with my mortality and forced me to relinquish control over my ministry. And I didn't realize how hard of a time I was having until October 16th. On October 16th, I hit a wall. Lacey and I were at a pastor's and wives retreat on Jekyll Island. And their focus for the weekend was pastor wellness. My biggest takeaway from that weekend was that this pastor was not well. On the first night of the conference, a prominent leader in the Southern Baptist Convention was the speaker. And he spoke about a recent battle that he had with depression. And I understand that the intention of his keynote was letting the 150 pastors in the room know that that they were not alone, that they can overcome their their anxiety, they can overcome their fear, they can overcome their, their depression by just hitching their wagon a little closer to Jesus. I know that was his intention, and I know that that is true, but I kept thinking to myself, if he struggled with depression, this, this, this pastor who's been wildly successful in ministry, this pastor who's written books, this pastor who's held prominent positions, if he struggled with depression, if he hit a wall, what hope do I have? If he hit a breaking point, what hope do I possibly have to avoid burning out myself? And so, so I'm sitting in this room, and you, you've probably had these moments in your life where the lie is a scream and the truth is a whisper. And on October 16th, in a, in a conference room on Jekyll Island, there was a voice in my head yelling, Bo, you can't win. There was a voice in my head that was spoking up the deepest fears inside my soul saying, you will fail, you will fall flat on your face, you will let down your wife, you will let down your children, you will let down your church, you can't win. 
And for the several weeks that followed, these three words were a thorn in my flesh. You can't win. And for a while, I believed the lie. But little by little, the truth started rising to the surface. Little by little, through conversations with my wife, through conversations with my family, through advice from mentors and fellow pastors, through counsel with God's Word, through sincere prayer, I started hearing God whisper, Bo, I've already won. Because when you're in Christ, this is your story. You were dead, but God. You can't win, but God. But God sent the Prince of Peace for you. Christ is your peace. When he overcame sin and death on the cross, he signed a peace treaty on your behalf. And when you trust in him, when you believe in him, you receive peace with God, peace with others, and peace with yourself. That's what the shepherds heard 2,000 years ago on that first Christmas night. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, I don't think that it's going out on a limb to say that we live in a world that is absent of peace. We see division. We see strife. We see hatred every single day. So, Father, we thank you that you sent your Son for us. We thank you that on the cross he created peace for us. That we have peace with you. That we can have peace with others. That we can have peace with ourselves. Father, as we walk through these strange times, where, where, where mental health seems to be at an all-time low, where people are struggling with anxiety, with fear, with worry, with depression, with, with conflict in their marriages and in their families. Father, take us back to the gospel. Take us back to the gospel. Take us back to those two Wonderful words written by the Apostle Paul, but God. Father, remind us that whatever is in front of us, whatever we are struggling with, we can put 
but God behind it. We thank you for that privilege. We thank you for Christ, who is our peace. We pray these things in his name. Amen.